Good morning. I'm privileged this morning to be able to uh, bring the message. I think I appreciate that opportunity. If you have your outline, you'll see that the um, the main passage is Second Timothy four one through four. But we're actually not going to start there. If you look at the introductory part. Uh, has a few other passages, so we're actually going to start in Acts chapter 20 and just quickly work through those short passages. So if you would actually find your place in Acts chapter 20 with me, and we we will start in verse 17 and then drop down to verse uh, 28. So Acts chapter 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he, being Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, and we're going to drop down to verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert. Now if you would flip over to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we will just read verses 3 and 4 from there. So 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now we'll find our place in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And read verses 1 through 4. He writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. We'll stop there and have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to bring uh, your word. I pray that you'll bless, bless the scripture as it's read to our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would, would work through these things and what is said. And I pray that it will be a challenge to all of us uh, and it will be an, an encouragement. He will use it to challenge us as a church as we go forth um, with the gospel and serving you. So again, thank you for the opportunity to be here and worship together. And I pray that you will work in all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Now, before his first imp- in, uh, his first Roman imprisonment, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers were going to come and try to destroy the church, as we just read in Acts chapter twenty. 
and he used the imagery of a shepherd protecting his flock from the wolves. And Paul tells them there to be on the alert. Now apparently this had already begun during his first Roman imprisonment. Um, because he writes to his first letter to Timothy that he is to remain on at Ephesus, as we saw, and to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So it's already going on. In fact, if you look throughout both letters, uh, he echoes this warning to Timothy about false teachers and false teaching, which go hand in hand, by the way. And in example, um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he tells him that the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells him um, that Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection, resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. And then Paul tells Timothy to avoid their worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, another warning about those who would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. Now, when Paul's writing his second letter to Timothy, he was in his second Roman imprisonment. During the first one, Paul expected to be released. And you can see that in some different verses in uh, the book of Philippians and in Philemon. And it came to pass. But this time, as he's writing the second letter, he's not having this expectation of being released. In fact, in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he tells Timothy, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. On top of that, many people had abandoned Paul because of persecution. In um, chapter 1 and verse 15, he mentions to Timothy that Timothy is aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. In chapter 4, he said that Demas had forsaken him, having loved this present world. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, just a few verses later from that, he says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. So as Paul's writing, false teachers have made their way into the church. Paul's been persecuted and imprisoned by the government for the second time, and many of his friends had forsaken him. With those things in mind, and knowing that his departure was at hand, he gives uh, Timothy one final charge in our passage. In verse 1, he tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you, preach the word. Now the word solemnly charge here, they have the idea of to thoroughly witness or testify or even warn or command. So in other words, Paul's not asking Timothy to preach. He's not really making this mere suggestion to preach. He's not even simply writing to encourage him in his preaching. He is giving, using serious language to express to him the utmost importance of preaching the word. 
And having expressed that seriousness, he then appeals to the highest court as witness to this charge. Now, if you think back at other times, Paul appealed to the witness of Timothy's ordination uh, when Paul and other ministers of the gospel laid their hands on him. They prophesied about him. They prayed over him. He appeals to that many times uh, in writing to Timothy. But this time, he doesn't appeal to that. His appeal goes far beyond anything that involves any man by saying that he solemnly charges him in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So he doesn't simply want uh, Timothy to preach just because man needs to hear it, and although that's true, but he's telling Timothy to preach because God is requiring this of you. God requires it. See, when we preach, it's before God that we preach ultimately. Um, Anybody can stand up and talk. But Paul Paul calls God to Timothy, I'm sorry, Paul calls God to witness to Timothy, that Timothy is to preach in such a way that is God-centered and shows the supremacy of Christ. And we need, uh, our preachers today need this conviction so that they, uh, to keep their sermons and messages from becoming man-centered, to keep them uh, from calling things gospel issues all the while essentially neglecting the the true gospel. Paul's charge to Timothy is not simply in the presence of God and of Christ but in light of the fact that Christ will be the final judge. Because he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And we know that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14. And we know that believers don't face condemnation, but we will give an account to God for how we served Him as believers. So I think by mentioning this final judgment of Christ, in Paul's charge to Timothy to preach the Word, he's intentionally bringing a sense of gravity to this charge. But he takes it a step further by appealing to the second coming of Christ when this final judgment will come. So he's appealed to Timothy by the presence of God and the final judgment of Christ, and he reminds him that Christ will return for the judgment, for that judgment and bring the fulfillment of His kingdom. And so regardless of whatever our particular eschatological views are, our views on the millennium, these types of things, it should be clear and we should understand that Christ will return. And I think Timothy is trying to, Paul is trying to remind Timothy of that. He wants him to keep that in mind as he preaches. It will keep him uh, focused. It will prevent him from derailing doctrinally or for, from forsaking his ministry. And really it's no different for preachers today. And I personally think it's very compelling to see how much the New Testament writers based their theology on the second coming of Christ. Now, we mostly think in the perspective of, you know, one day we will die and stand before God and give an account. And of course, that's true. That's biblical. But it really wasn't the focus of the New Testament writers. If you really look through, if I had time, actually, I have a slideshow that's like 30 slides long that deals with all these passages where these writers were talking about the second coming of Christ. And so aside from the Gospels and Revelation, the the focus on the second coming of Christ pervades the New Testament in the writings of Acts, the letters of Paul, Peter, James, Jude, Hebrews, 1 John. Um, Just for the sake of time and brevity, I've chosen three to share with you. And they're there in your notes, but I'll read them aloud to you. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So Paul's charge to Timothy uh, in return to Christ's return was not just a mere token. It wasn't simply an expression to add a little weight to the charge. It wasn't just theological jargon. I think it was a warning to Timothy to take seriously the charge that Paul was about to lay before him in this text. He's appealing to the ultimate and the final judgment that this world will face, as well as the glory that believers will experience when Christ returns. And I think we ought to have the same gravity today. We ought to be looking for and hastening the second coming of Christ as the other New Test, uh, as the, Paul and the other New Testament writers constantly admonish their readers with. Having said all those things, though, leading up to our text here, what was the charge that Paul gave to Timothy? If you look at verse 2, the answer is right there in chapter 4. He says, preach the word. So Paul is saying this to Timothy. Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. So this was the charge that Paul gave to Timothy. Nothing else. This was the charge, to preach the word. But before I talk about what preaching is, I want to say a quick word about what it is not, because I think we have to make some distinctions. Preaching is not entertainment. A.W. Tozer said, The church that can't worship must be entertained, and men who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. But we know that this is very prevalent in our culture. Just a lot of foolishness and nonsense that's replaced what should be the preaching of the Word. Preaching is not putting on plays. I think it can be exhorting to see a biblical a biblical story acted out. I've seen it. I've experienced it. But it's not preaching. It doesn't replace preaching. Preaching is not comedy. I'm thankful for Christian comedians. But that's not ultimately the goal or the calling of the church. Preaching is not dancing. And now I say this as someone who has two daughters that are enrolled at a Christian dance studio. I'm thankful for that studio. I'm thankful for their Christian focus. I support my daughter's involvement there. But I think it has to be clear that dancing is not preaching or evangelism and the Bible never gives it as a means of imparting God's truth. Preaching is not music. I love godly music that reflects the truths of God's Word and our music should do that. We know that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord. And also that we are to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
And of course, music is an important part of our worship, but it cannot be confused with and it cannot replace the preaching of God's Word. All the things I mentioned, there may be time and place for those things. There may be uh, context where those things are appropriate, but they can never replace the preaching that God has prescribed to us here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I, I think with all the seriousness that Paul could gather, he's appealing to Timothy to preach in the light of the highest court and the final judgment that comes when Christ returns. And really, I don't think there was anything higher that he could have appealed to. There was, no, there was no higher appeal. And if we utilize these other things that I mentioned, and things like them, I'm sure there are many I didn't mention, if we utilize those instead of preaching, or if we focus on those things more than preaching, what we will do is weaken the church and we will shortchange everyone who comes to our services. What are we to preach then? Paul tells Timothy to preach the Word. Notice that he does not tell Timothy to find scriptural truths and cultural entertainment or conventional wisdom. He tells him to preach the Word. So we don't need things like night at the movies. Um, We don't need to use cultural entertainment to try to find a relevant way to communicate God's truth. Personally, I'm hesitant to even use movies as examples in sermons, although I've been tempted at times. But I think using a movie as the primary source for your sermon is not preaching. I think it's disobedience to God. So we need to preach the Word. We don't need talks, sessions, fireside chats. These things can be beneficial in certain contexts, but they're not preaching. We don't need vision casting. What we need is preaching of God's Word. There are many today preaching something, but a lot of times it's not the Word of God. What what does Paul mean by the Word. Well, it encompasses, number one, all of God's Word. And number two, it has a heavy focus on the Gospel. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, um, where we were in verse 27, which we did not read, Paul told the Ephesian elders that he had not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. And just a few verses before that, in verses 20 and 21, he had said that he had been solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So well-rounded preaching, I think, involves the entirety of Scripture, but all the while shining the spotlight on the Gospel of Christ. In fact, Paul expressed the same thing in the verses that lead up to our text in 2 Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 16, he said, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And in the preceding verse, he told Timothy that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So there was this focus on the the whole word, but also this focus on the gospel. So our preaching must be the word the whole word and nothing but the word, and that will necessarily lead us to constantly point people to the cross. And as the word of God, it is infinitely superior to philosophies of man, and it is the only means by which a person can be saved and changed. Paul says in Second or First Thessalonians two thirteen that they had received the word of God and accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. So it's bringing a change in them. Also, a quick note here, 
As Paul said in, in Acts 20, that he preached to both the Jews and the Greeks, the message doesn't change for any special interest groups. The same word, the same gospel is preached to all. It's not changed for anyone. Next, though, Paul tells Timothy when to preach. He says that he is to be ready in season and out of season. In other words, he must be ready at all times. And I think this implies a handful of things. First of all, convenience is irrelevant. One, common, one commentator stated this about preaching in season and out of season. Not merely when convenient, but when inconvenient to thee, night as well as day, in danger as well as in safety, in prison and when doomed to death, as well as when at large, not only in church, but everywhere and on all occasions, whenever and wherever the Lord's work requires it. Thinking about some of the events of the last couple of years, it's not very convenient to preach when pastors are being arrested, when church buildings are being barricaded and blocked off by police. We saw this in Canada, for example. But guess what? Many were faithful to preach anyway. It's not convenient, but sometimes it still must be done. The popularity of the message is irrelevant. MacArthur stated, The dictates of popular culture, tradition, reputation, acceptance, or esteem in the community or in the church must never alter the true preacher's commitment to proclaim God's Word. Now we have the ever-increasing influence of Marxism and wokeism in our culture. We have sexual perversion and gender rebellion continually shaping the political um, entertainment, education, and even religious landscape in our day. So the preaching of the Word is very much out of season in our time. But that does not really change anything for us, does it? We must preach the truth in regard to these and every issue that manifests itself in our culture and our daily lives. Preaching is not to be man-centered. The Bible says, let God be true, but every man a liar. You see, the message is for man, but it is from God. Therefore, it must be scriptural, God-centered, and Christ-centered. And the purpose of preaching is not to focus is not for God to focus on man, but it's for man to focus on God, thereby leading man to repentance, faith, justification, sanctification, and worship. Fourth, it's not done solely for monetary gain. We know that the laborer is worthy of his wages. We know that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But the preacher of God's Word is not a hired servant. He's not hired by the church just to tell the church what they want to hear. He's a servant of God sent to preach God's message to what Christ called a wicked and adulterous generation. Next, it's a guard against laziness and weakness. Calvin tells us that by these words, in other words, in in season and out of season, he recommends not only constancy, but likewise earnestness so as to overcome all hindrances and difficulties. For, being by nature exceedingly effeminate or slothful, we easily yield to the slightest opposition, and sometimes we gladly seek apologies for our slothfulness. Finally, in this section, we must rely on the Holy Spirit. We look to the Holy Spirit of God to ultimately take the message of the Word and apply it to the hearts of the listeners. We can interpret the text rightly. We can be good orators. 
We can speak all the right words. We can say all the right things. But without the work of the Holy Spirit in our preaching, it's all in vain. But we trust Him to work through those weaknesses. We trust Him to work through our poorly developed sermons, our poorly delivered sermons, because we know that it's through the foolishness of preaching, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God has promised to save sinners. So to preach in season and out of season means that we, we do not allow the whims of our culture or the weakness of our flesh to determine what we preach. We must faithfully preach the truths of God's Word when it's popular and even dangerous, and I think today it's becoming increasingly both. After describing when to preach, Paul moves on to how to preach in our passage. Such preaching involves reproving and rebuking. Now these deal with exposing, showing fault, convincing through careful, thoughtful, and strong argumentation, as well as revealing false motives and calling the hearers to repentance. It involves exhortation. Exhortation speaks of encouraging hearers to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to grow in their knowledge of Scripture, to seek to understand the attributes of God, to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love the neighbor as yourself, um, to be kind and gentle, to not lose heart in doing good, to rejoice in suffering and persecution, to look to the return of Christ, to set your affections on things above, to grow in sanctification, to persevere in the faith, to pray and to preach the gospel. These and I'm sure many other things would be involved in exhortation. Then he says that the preaching is to be done with great patience or instruction, or other translations say something like with all long-suffering and doctrine. So zeal in preaching, of course, is good, but it must be tempered with patience. For without it, the preacher, he can become burnt out, he can become bitter, he can do a lot of damage in the church and to the hearers. And by instruction, is meant that the preacher must have a thorough um, understanding of the basic truths of the Bible and of the Gospel, and he should be able to, co- to clearly communicate to, to the listeners. The Bible says that the preacher is to be apt to teach God's Word. But in verses 3 and 4, Paul explains why such preaching is needed. Why it is essential to preach the Word, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting the hearers with patience and teaching. And he gives three reasons, but before we look at the reasons, let's read, I just want to read those two verses, verses 3 and 4, again from 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So he gives three reasons. The first reason is false listeners. They will not endure sound doctrine. They will want to have their ears tickled or more literally they will have itching ears. This essentially means that they will not be able to tolerate true biblical teaching because they will hate it. After false listeners, the second is false teachers. Paul says they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Where there are false listeners, there are necessarily false teachers. 
and the false listeners will flock to the false teachers. And these false teachers will deceive and be deceived. They will twist the Scriptures all the while leading people straight to hell. But this is what the false listeners want, as it says, in accordance to their own desires. The third reason, then, is false teaching. As these false listeners will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So we know that where there are false teachers, there is necessarily false teaching. They go hand in hand, as I mentioned earlier. You can't have one with the other without the other. You have false teachers, you have false teaching. But because of these, Paul tells to Timothy, Paul says to Timothy that it is imperative that he preach the word. And he gave Titus a similar charge when he told him that he must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now Paul's charge to Timothy was with the knowledge that savage wolves had infiltrated the church. And to some degree, this has always been true throughout church history. I think we can see that, that there's always been false teachers, there's always been these wolves. And we constantly see Jesus, Paul, Jude, Peter, and others warning against false teachers in the church as well. And I think in a very tangible way, this is becoming increasingly true in our day. And I really think it should cause us a lot of alarm uh, that these wolves are growing in number and influence and are becoming more savage in their attacks on the truth. Two of the most aggressive ways that this is happening today is through leftist ideology, namely wokeness um, and the subversive LGBT agenda. Now, wokeness or cultural Marxism, it's a system of thought that views people in one of two categories. You're either the oppressor or the oppressed. You're either the prey or the victim. And of course, we know that oppression is a real thing. The Bible condemns it. But the difference, the difference is that instead of actually identifying individuals who are actually oppressive by the, their behavior and then holding them accountable what we do is we take entire groups of people and label them as oppressors simply by virtue of their race or their gender because of some supposed system that we're all stuck in that doesn't really exist. We see this in critical race theory, for example. And because of this, we see all kinds of church leaders, pastors and others, marching for social justice and calling things gospel issues, all the while at the same time neglecting the actual gospel. Social justice then becomes a works-based false gospel claiming that if you are really a Christian, you should be doing these things and supporting this agenda. And if you're not, you're not loving your neighbor. Which is, by the way, a phrase that has been hijacked and misused in our day. And unfortunately, the term social justice is another term that's been hijacked and redefined. In our hymnal, in our red hymnal, there's actually a topic section called social justice. But what that section deals with are songs that deal with God's justice in the world. And so that's the justice that we should be after. But in today's jargon, what social justice means is justice that's defined by society rather than God's justice being done in society. Biblically speaking, 
The ultimate social justice will be when Christ returns and destroys unbelievers. That's ultimate biblical social justice. Racial reconciliation. True racial reconciliation is in Christ. And it ultimately finds its fulfillment when there is this innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation standing before God, giving thanks and worshiping for the salvation that He has given them. This is why the church's primary goal is always to preach the gospel to the world. Unfortunately, though, churches, entire denominations, Bible colleges, seminaries, missions organizations, all kinds of other Christians' institutions have been infiltrated by these communistic ideas. They're being preached from the pulpit. They're being taught in the classrooms. The other one, the big one, I should say, there are many others. The other big one of our day is the very aggressive LGBT agenda. Knowing there's young children in the room trying to deal with this appropriately. Uh, We heard last week about how Canada has made conversion therapy illegal. Um, Germany and some other countries have done the same thing in the past. After after this was announced about Canada, um, John MacArthur called upon pastors to preach openly against these sins. And there was a specific Sunday that he was especially uh, calling upon pastors to do that. So he calls upon pastors to do that, and then his own sermon is removed from YouTube as hate speech. But oppressive governments and cultures are one thing, but I think what we're seeing is we're seeing sexual perversion and gender rebellion uh, pervading the church and Christian institutions. I'm sure that you've all heard of this thing out there called Drag Queen Story Hour, this horrible thing in libraries throughout the country where Men dressed as women read stories to kids in an effort to groom them into accepting these wicked lifestyles. In December, there was a Lutheran church in Chicago that held a drag queen prayer time for children during a Sunday morning service. In January, a church in Minnesota hosted an event called Drag Me to Church, which was a supposed worship service that was led by men dressed as women. At either the same or a similar event elsewhere, I couldn't discern which it is, which it was. There was a bulletin, though, that someone had shared online that had a rewritten version of the Lord's Prayer that started out this way. Our parent, who is among us, blessed be your creation. Instead of what the Bible actually says, our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. This bulletin from this service also featured an opening prayer that started with these words in the name of god the father god the mother and god the trans identifying parent of color in germany over 120 uh, catholic leaders including including priests and nuns held a mass coming out event they were stating how they didn't want to uh, hide their sexual identities any longer and they were talking about how wonderfully queer the body of christ is In London, a supposed Baptist pastor explained that Jesus had transgendered himself on numerous occasions. A couple of examples that he mentioned. When Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, saying that he would have gathered them as a hen gathers her chicks, he says in that case, Jesus transgenders himself. Or where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, this this man making these claims says that that was uh, usually a role that was done by women, 
And so he says, quote, Jesus does it and becomes the woman at that point, end quote. A female pastor, which is a contradiction in terms, performs some very serious textual gymnastics while quoting John uh, 13.23 about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, reclining on Jesus' bosom. And she does that in order to come to the conclusion that Jesus had a same-gender lover. The explanation of which I will spare you, especially due to the younger ears in the room. But after further commentary, she states, perhaps our God is queer and trans too. Now this is blasphemy. This is twisting of scriptures to the highest degree. And I wish I were making it up, but these things are really happening in quote-unquote churches by quote-unquote pastors and church and spiritual and quote-unquote Christian leaders. Okay, that's the more extreme side, right? So let's bring it a little closer to home. In more conservative evangelical circles, maybe we're not hosting drag events yet, but there is a push to soften our views on all of these things, resulting in what is known as side B Christianity. And in this side B, it's understood that homosexuality is a sin, but it's okay for Christian to be same-sex attracted, or if you see the letters SSA, as long as you don't act on it. That's the idea. That's what, they're, that's what they're pushing. And some even go as far as saying that it's okay to be in a same-sex romantic relationship as long as it's not fulfilled physically. And there are these supposed ministries like Revoice, and living out, and they have made significant inroads into groups like the Southern Baptist Church and the Presbyterian Churches of America and many others. Duke Kwan, a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he's an author at the Gospel Coalition, he hired as an assistant a woman who is a known gay rights and abortion activist. This is a pastor hiring this woman as an assistant. Tim Keller, a PCA pastor, and co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, in an interview stated that you don't go to hell for being a homosexual or for committing homosexual acts. And his reasoning was this. He said, heterosexuality does not get you to heaven, so how in the world can homosexuality send you to hell? My answer, of course, heterosexuality doesn't send one to heaven or get one to heaven, but failing to repent of your sins and trust in Christ will send you to hell, and someone who is not repenting of these things is not going to heaven. Paul said over and over and over again, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So there's this softening of these views. J.D. Greer, pastor and former Southern Baptist Convention president, he quoted a female Bible teacher from his church saying, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. Claiming his claim by saying that was that the Bible only whispers about sexual sins while shouting about other types of sins. We're almost finished, so I'd ask you to just quick. I just want to take a quick look at Romans chapter one. You probably know where I'm going. Romans chapter one. Just going to make a very brief commentary on this section, just to make a point. We will read verses 24 through 27. Paul writes here, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 
For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the, create, the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Notice, first of all, just quickly in this passage, especially in verse 27, that when these men abandoned the natural function of the woman, they were rejecting, first of all, God's design. Next it says that they burned towards one another with desire. As a result of those two things, they then committed indecent and shameful deeds. Finally, it says that they received what was due, the penalty due, because of these things, which Paul says in verse 32 in the same passage is death. He says, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Now, no doubt Paul was referencing, among probably other passages, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13, which says, If there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. But notice that when Paul talks about it in in verse 27, that he does not separate the desire from the deed. So I ask you, looking at this passage in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, does that sound like whispering to you? The Bible never whispers about sin. So for anyone to make that claim is foolish. And neither should we. And we know that Christians could be tempted by and struggle with a variety of sexual sins. But when someone is finding their identity in those things rather than being a new creation by the Holy Spirit and fighting against those things, there's a problem. And I mentioned these little examples. These are just snippets of really thousands of examples out there that we could use. But why do I mention them? Because I think it's time, now more than ever, it's time for preachers to stand up and preach God's Word. About these issues and many other issues. About abortion. About feminism. About drunkenness. About adultery. What we need is men of God to preach about loving your neighbor as yourself from a biblical standpoint, not the twisted way that it's used today to shame people into doing things they don't want or to accepting things that aren't really biblical. Also, let me just say that God has not granted for women to be a part of the preaching ministry. It's not a sexist thing. It's just the way God has said it should be. So that's the way it should be. I think it's time for the church to stop being caught up in the spirit of the age and it's time to stand firm on God's truth. And I will say, I know that I'm preaching to a group that most of you will never even be preachers, but you come to hear the preaching and you come in support of those who are preaching, knowing that it's through the church that the, the preaching of the gospel is going forth. But Paul's charge to Timothy came at a time when there was fierce opposition all around. If you remember the savage wolves, uh, those who were forsaking him because of persecution, uh, him being imprisoned and knowing that his time was at hand. So there was fierce opposition all around. And today, I really think we find ourselves in the same situation. 
except things that we once understood as basic Bible truths are being replaced with doctrines of demons. Some of the examples that I mentioned before and the things people are saying, these are doctrines of demons. So what are we going to do here when it's illegal to preach these things here in the United States? What are we going to do when Alan and Mike and, and, and the other Alan and the others are thrown in jail for preaching God's truth and being faithful to God's Word? What are we going to do? And I think we need to ask ourselves that question now. And we need to ask the Lord to prepare us now so that when the time comes, we won't be surprised and the Lord, we won't be uh, scared and run off. And my prayer in that time is that uh, whenever that starts to happen, that the Lord will raise other people up to step in and do the same thing, being willing to, to pay the same price, perhaps even to the, to the point where we've all been thrown in jail and there's no one left to do it. And I think we need to pray for our brothers in Canada, our brothers in Germany, these other countries that have outlawed basically God's Word and the truth of God's Word. And when the time comes, for them and for us, let's pray that the Lord uses them in successful prison ministries because it may come to that. The point, though, is that whether we're dealing with oppressive governments or savage wolves in the church, first of all, we must be on the alert and we must preach the Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for this time to bring the message. I pray that it was challenging and convicting to all of us and that it would stir us up to, to rely on You and to seek even more to understand Your Word, to understand Your truth. I pray that You'll just help us to grow in those things and help us to be ready and willing to pay the price as it may come to to preach Your Word in this country and, in, and all around the world. Uh, challenge us, encourage us, strengthen our hearts in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.